0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources, or check out all the original writing on our site at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as a growing library of videos, and of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in China's Xinjiang region, to the tectonic shifts underway as China rolls out what we are calling the Red New Deal. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. Who is watching the China Watchers? Well, the short answer is David McCourt. David McCourt is watching The China Watchers. David is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of California, Davis, and for the last six years, he's been doing sociological research on that ill-defined and fractious tribe of individuals once referred to as China hands, and now generally, but not unproblematically, called China Watchers. David himself is not, by his own reckoning, a China Watcher, but they are his subject, and he has conducted a bewildering number of interviews with people in the China field ranging from academics to media people to think tankers to people in government and from positions ranging from the most strident national security hawks to rights advocates to the most ardent doves, panda huggers, panda sluggers, and maybe even panda shruggers. They've all spoken at length with David, and I suppose I should say right up front that I'm actually one of them, Uh, and that's how I first learned about his fascinating research, and uh, I spoke to him quite early on. David joins me today to share some of his findings and to talk about his ongoing area
1: of study. David McCourt, welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much, Kaiser. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Well, we are delighted to have you. So David, you have been interested in the sociology of foreign policy communities. Uh, but before looking at American China watchers, you were working on your native Britain, uh, and then eventually made your way to the States. What was it about the US foreign policy community in particular that got you interested? And why did you eventually settle on looking at the China focused world?
1: Well, it was pure serendipity, really, that I started to think about U.S. foreign policy in uh, 2014 and 2015. You're right. What I started doing for my early work, for, for my doctoral work, was about my native Britain. And I wrote a dissertation on Britain's great power role in international politics, this sort of puzzle of why Britain had continued to play the role of a great power long after the end of empire. mm I put together an analysis that was focused particularly on sort of the language and imagery of Britain's role in the world. And what I realized later was that I was looking at a case that had very little in the way of inter-elite conflict, Mm, you might mm. say. Most Brits are of an elite sort of uh, status are on board with Britain as a great power. Rule Britannia, yeah. <laughs> Rural Britannia. And, and you see this still today, the idea of global Britain has still got a lot of purchase. And uh, Labour, uh, Conservative, Liberal Democrat, everyone is sort of broadly speaking on board. And the other thing I, I noticed speaking to people about it was that there wasn't then a lot of dispute among uh, think tankers and academics in London. And there wasn't the sort of this busy elbowing and nudging people to try and make your voice the loudest loudest, which you do get in the United States. And so when I started to think about a new project after the the Britain book, I wanted to look at the universe of think tanks, research institutes, academic departments that make up the US foreign policy architecture, uh, what is often re- referred to as the establishment, and to think about how that inter-elite, inter-expert conflict was underpinning American hegemony. So the interest in role playing in international politics stayed, but here I was interested in America's hegemonic role and the institutional architecture and and intellectual underpinnings of it. Mm -hmm. Why China? Well, China was simply some, uh, some colleagues suggested I needed to narrow down my research. Uh, and they said, well, what about China? That's a big thing, right? <laughs> and this was in 2014, 2015. In some ways, before it was quite a big thing. Remember 2014, 2015, and this is a big part of the story. We're still talking about uh, Russia and Ukraine. We were talking about Syria. Sure. Uh, we were talking about ISIS, and we're talking about ISIS all the way into 2016. A really big part of the story of why uh, U.S.-China relations has taken the trajectory it has is the, uh, the way in which we're still looking at other things as late as uh, almost the end of the Obama second term. So it was pure serendipity from my perspective that to be looking at 2014-2015 US-China relations and starting to talk to people um, around mid middle to late 2016. So that's how I came to the the topic of US-China relations. Again, it plays into this argument I'm sort of saying to people, which is that I'm not a China watcher, I'm watching the China watchers.
0: Right. So who are these China Watchers? What are the dimensions of this community? Uh, what are its constituent parts or, or sub-communities? And and how do you you personally conceive of this from your sociological vantage point as a community?
1: Well, the first point is that I, I come in with fairly limited assumptions about its community-ness, mm-hmm. if you want to put it in those terms. I suggest that there is something there that the terms China Watcher, China Waller, China Hand sort of get, get at, but I don't come in imposing my own boundaries on the community. And so in my interviews, that was often one of the first issues we broached, which is to what extent is this a China-watching community? Um, or was it, or did it used to be? Is it still one? How big is it? What are its boundaries? These are empirical questions that I really don't want to impose. Okay. So that's the first point. The second point is that I think the imagery of concentric circles is quite useful and at the middle of those concentric circles are perhaps dozens of people who we would all recognize as very uh, well respected high profile China watchers. They tend to be at the major think tanks in Washington DC, often have gone into positions of government or are are positioning themselves to do so and That used to be only a handful of people, but it nowadays is uh, dozens, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then you get the concentric circles moving outwards. So if we ask who's in the field and who's not, is Elizabeth economy? Sure, of course she is. Are my colleagues in the East Asian Studies Department here at UC Davis, 3,000 miles from Washington, D.C.? Well, sort of, but probably not if they study tea culture in certain regions of China, etc. The operative question really is not who's in and who's out, but how people themselves define who's in and who's out, and who feels the effects of the community, who feels the pushes and pulls and how enabled and constrained by present issues, by how the community works, by how it shapes people's views, and how it stops us from thinking certain things and allows us to think certain Mm -hmm. things. Just like any other community, if you think of Sort of sports communities or journalistic communities like yourself, Kaiser.
0: Sure. There's a phrase that you use in describing what it is that these China watchers possess to varying degrees, and you call it China capital. So, w- what is China capital? What forms does it take? Uh, is there is there anything like, you know, a shared idea of what constitutes real China capital, or or how much demonstrable capital is needed to be, you know, gain, to gain admission to this club?
1: Yes, I use the term China capital to mean a sort of the the power one has and one can wield within a particular community, which is related to one's position within a community. The, the closer you are to the middle of it, the more capital you have. Again, in a sports community, it would be to do with The way in which you're understood as being very good at a certain sport. So Steph Curry is right in the middle there of the basketball community. Uh, People with high amounts of China capital, again, Elizabeth Economy comes to mind, David Shambo, Mike Lampton, etc. People who have this thing that they can spend in order to gain influence within the community. So it's a composite form of power and you can get it in a number of different ways. You don't necessarily have to have all of these things, but you do have to have a certain number of them. Speaking the language is a really important one. Time spent in China or familiarity with China. Mm -hmm. Academic credentials are important as well, but they're not necessarily the most important thing. You don't necessarily need to have gone to Harvard if you've spent the last 20 years in China. Government experience, public prominence, each of these are what you might call sort of family resemblances of someone with a lot of China capital. Very good. Now, another point that we should sort of bring in is that the China community is not separate from other communities. It is what it's co- what we could call interstitial. It exists alongside and acrossing the boundaries into other communities. So the think tank community, the general sort of foreign policy think tank community, the research centres that what they call the federally funded. Research and development centers, RAND Center, sure. Center for Naval Analysis, etc. Academia, media, the business, the law, uh, international law and domestic law, the military, the state bureaucracy, Congress, congressional commissions like the uh, USCC, the US-China um, Congressional Executive Committee, right. and journalism. So yourself, Kaiser, is an interesting example here because you're a china watcher but you're also a member of the media and so you're pushed and pulled by two separate things you want to uh, speak to other china community folks other china watchers but you also have to play by the rules of the media right and the, and what the media is wanting you to do is to again uh, as many li- listeners as possible and as many sort of followers and subscribers etc the same goes for academics um or li- people in the legal field uh, so the, the China community is, it's a community that's a segment of these other broader communities, which help us to understand why people behave in the way they do within it.
0: A quick aside on nomenclature. Do you find that people who work on China professionally are comfortable, more or less, with this this name, China Watcher? And, and why do they reject other labels? I mean, nobody here, at least on this side of the Atlantic, says China Walla. You brought that up as one. But, you know, China Hand for a while was was popular. China expert is one that you know most people outside this world still use when introducing us on television shows and the like. But we never say it ourselves, or if we do, we're kind of laughed at. You know, we recognize the ridiculousness of claiming to be an expert on, you know, this this ridiculously large you know, civilization. But what about the other monikers, and and how how do people feel about China watcher?
1: I, you're absolutely right. I did. Feel a lot more uh, unhappiness with the idea of of self ascribing expertise. So, what my role was has been to try to understand how it, different individuals ascribe self ascribe these labels. So, senior China experts or China watchers, shall we say, typically reject the label of China experts. Often, younger folks who are wanting to be accepted in the community will actually ascribe themselves China experts. So, it's it's the It's the paradoxical situation of those who undisputably are experts or are recognized as experts, we should say, that uh, reject the label and those that want to adopt it are the ones that are not necessarily there yet. (laughs) Um, China hand is typically self-ascribed by folks who've been in positions, uh, in, in official positions or in diplomacy. China watcher then I think is just this new label in part i think it's been cottoned onto by fo- some folks in the media or so what i'm calling the new media space to try to sort of create an object that they're interested in which is a china watching community i'm thinking here politicos china watcher right. uh newsletter you know it's interesting that 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 label this label is just the one that people are cottoning onto at the at present time uh, again i'd be really interested to see what whether this was a common label in, say, 2010, 2005, 2000, my guess is not. I think people are cottoning onto it as a, as a, as a way to ascribe uh, identity to a thing that people are seeing. And in so doing, they're sort of helping create that thing, right, the China-watching community. Right. Um, There's books back into the 1960s about the China watchers, uh, but that, at that time, it was a very, very small group. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it the, the politics of labeling is is a fascinating sort of issue who self-ascribes what t- term and often just china person or china guy which obviously sort of has gender uh, sort of problems to it a little bit uh but that's that one is 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 the is put around there as well <laughs> a china guy yeah well, let's get into the taxonomy here
0: uh, I think that just about anyone coming to this topic would probably recognize, you know, as you have, that there is one issue that maybe strongly suggests itself as as the one that bifurcates the community, and, and that's where they fall on the issue of engagement. Uh, but when you started this work six years ago, arguably that was not the case. I mean, there were critics of engagement for sure, and long before that there were always, you know, kind of panda huggers and dragon slayers, uh, But it wasn't really until 2018, arguably, with the publication of this big piece by Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, both of whom are back in government now, uh, that that this became sort of the natural dividing line, I I would say. When I first encountered you and we first spoke, I remember you used different language than you use now. Uh, uh, One side, my side, I mean, (laughs) you were calling the the nuancers, and I don't remember what you were calling the other side, but now it's decidedly sort of pro and anti-engagement every time I've talked to you, those are the, the, the terms that come up. and It's in your talks that you've given and in and, and, and papers. Does that neatly align with hawks and doves, and, and can those be used interchangeably, or is there more to the taxonomy than this one
1: divide? So the first thing I think I would say is that we have to put the hawks-doves division to one side because it's more uh, of, a, of an obstacle than helpful. Sure. Even though it always comes back in, because I think it's it makes so much sense to people who are looking at, particularly uh, U.S. foreign policy, um, that that taxonomy really seems to work. But I definitely want to put that to one side uh, again n- w- in the effort to not ascribe my own views coming into the field and coming into the community on what's going on. And you're right that when I started to talk to people in 2017, really early 2018, the language of engagement um, was only just starting to sort of creep in. And you're right with the March 2018 Campbell and Ratner Foreign Affairs piece, it really sort of broke to the surface and and since has become the major uh, dividing language. And one of the things I've found the most difficult about my research so far is that it's such a Uh, a fast and rapidly changing landscape. So just from 2019 or so until today, the major groupings and the major language that we might use to describe the major groupings in the debates in the China community are shifting. So when I started to talk talk about it, uh, you're right, I started to talk about the, the sort of the nuances versus the China critics or sometimes I did use the term China hawk. Now, I think that the major groupings are um, between the engagers and the strategic competitors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although even since thinking about that, I think that even that language is a little bit too clumsy because within each of those camps, there are at least two others. So within the broad camp of what you might call engagers, you have what I'm now calling older engage- the old engagers versus new engagers. Uh, I think that old engagers are uh, folks who were associated with uh, engagement as a policy um, within the US government. Many of them are within the think tank space. New engagers are ones which, and I'd put you in this camp, Kaiser, and I'd be interested to sort of hear your thoughts on it, are folks often sort of younger, uh, not necessarily having been in government yet themselves, but may in, in the future. And they're thinking about how to talk about something like engagement in a world when engagement did, was pushed away as the operative frame of US mm. foreign policy toward China. Now, on the other side, then, the Hawks label is far too unrevealing. And what I'm using on that side is to talk about the strategic competitors and people to their right, if you like. But again, that language is, is not really uh, appropriate to their more China-skeptic, China-critic flank, which I'm calling the new cold warriors or really anti-China folks. sure. Uh, so y- as you've, you've mentioned, the language itself changes. And in this case, it changes very quickly. You know, these, lab- these terms, which I'm sure we'll drill down a little bit more into in a second, might even just in two, three years be uh, outmoded. Uh, and that's why a sociological, a sort of historically sensitive sociological approach is so necessary, but also so difficult because the world of 2021 and 2022 is very different from just early 2019, late 2018. Yeah, it really is a different world that we're in. I
0: certainly agree. I mean, and I, I wonder whether, you know, engagement as the line of bifurcation really is is a good one. It doesn't capture enough of the subdivisions. I mean, I, for instance, I know people who are deeply worried about what they see as, you know, national security challenges or even threats from China. Who nevertheless advocate engagement as the best way to manage and reduce those threats. And I know people who feel really passionately about human rights, uh, whether we're talking about Xinjiang or or Hong Kong or or or, or Tibet, uh, who nevertheless champion engagement as the best way to actually affect improvement in China's human rights practices. So it's it's very it's it's definitely complicated. I'm curious though, how good are people at locating themselves on this sort of conceptual map of yours? I mean. Does their self placement generally correspond with what you might where you might place them based on their specific answers to policy questions?
1: I think people are very good at associating their views and themselves as individuals with others in the field. Yeah. So when I say uh one way that I like to get into this is to ask people who they would maybe like to have a coffee or a beer with and I'll sort of give them a couple of options and say hey I'll buy you dinner and you can have dinner with uh so-and-so who's very much a strong engager or so-and-so who is a a a sort of a fire-breathing china hawk and I'll get a little bit of a sense from that as to who they as to where they are so what, again, that speaks to this issue of what I'm trying to do, which is not to impose these categories sort of ex ante and say, hey, there are engagers over here and there are strategic competitors over there. Where do you sit? But to get at it a little bit indirectly and say, "You know, where would you position yourself? Right. Who are you friendly with? Who do you tend to tend to see the world similarly to? And there what you see is that people are actually very good. Um, because obviously this is their day-to-day. They go to seminars, they go to talks, they do hang out with people. There are people that they like, there are people that they don't like. Um, And it's not necessarily the case then that they'll say, well, I'm firmly in the pro-engagement camp. It's more that, you know, I really like to hang out with this person and I tend to see the world quite similarly. So that's the first point. The second point is then you do see the people who are genuinely what they might self-describe as their orphans because they really don't fit within any of these these categories or these groups. Or so they imagine. Or so they imagine, but there are often more people uh, who are similar similarly positioned than they might think. Uh, and you do sort of highlight the people who are at the, Uh, the interstices, you might say, of of different groups. Mm -hmm. So to name names a little bit, you had Jude Blanchett on here a couple of weeks ago, fascinating uh, scholar of China, one of the most well-respected in the field, um, and runs roughshod over many of these categories in fascinating ways. He is, in a sense, an exception that proves the rule, though most people are uh, are closer to certain uh, positions. Right, right, right. So you draw a distinction
0: between engagement with a capital E and engagement with a small e um and you know you look at engagement I mean I'm not sure which capitalization I'm using in this case as a policy as a frame and also most interestingly to me as a community could you talk a little bit about how you define and approach engagement I mean it's a hotly contested thing you describe it as a meta narrative so what do you mean by that, and and how does how does it break down? Uh, what are these E and largy and and, uh, and and what have you?
1: Yeah, so these come out of this task that I think we're already uh, talking around, really, which is that engagement wasn't a thing in any straightforward sense. In a sense that the question of what is engagement or was engagement is it is it still a thing? Is it is it ongoing? Is not an easy one to deal with, uh, uh, sort of intellectually. It's one that we have to fight with quite a lot, uh, and we might have to get a little bit theoretical on in order to be to be able to grasp this thing, because part of the debate over engagement has been: was there such a thing as engagement itself? Right. Uh, was it for for many uh, pro-engagers? Again, if we're going to use that terminology, there was no such thing as engagement. It was just U.S.-China relations for. For decades in which talking to them, cooperating them, trying to bring them into international institutions seemed common sense, and especially when we were busy in the Middle East or Russia or elsewhere and China didn't seem such a pressing question or challenge or problem. Again, just the problem of language is really important here. What terms can we use and how can we make sure that the language that we use doesn't actually get in the way of the thing we're trying to understand? And it might be that the term itself, engagement, is really hampering us from understanding. Because what we're really trying to understand, obviously, is US policy and what the US has done and what it perhaps should do. So the first distinction that I make is between engagement with a small E and an engagement with a uh, capital E where engagement with a capital E is really what we're talking about in the debate as this constructed thing that has really come about since 2017, 2018 that we're debating and is what you might call a sort of an essentially contested concept. Everyone sort of has a different understanding of what they mean by it. And those understandings are not going to help us to get to any real ultimate essence of what this thing is. So a capital E is really trying to sort of uh, talk about the way in which we discuss this thing, and there's no way in which you're going to get strong critics and strong proponents of engagement on the same page about what fundamentally the thing is. There are, there are no, so no
0: points on which they agree? I mean, wouldn't they at least accept that uh, the policy of engagement, small or large e, involved you know, uh, track one and track two dialogues included uh, the establishment of channels of of communication between these two. That there was civil society engagement. That there was you know uh, an effort at least to promote public diplomacy in both directions. That kind of thing. Wouldn't they at least agree to that? I mean, I think the the big thing that's contested is what was what was to be gained by it. I mean, the big issue is. People who were pro engagement are often accused of having believed that by pursuing this, we would produce change in, in China, that it would be, it would emerge at the end of this process as a liberal democratic polity. Uh, and that, that's usually, you know, where, where they start. And I think that a lot of us on this side say, nope, that's a straw man. So,
1: Yes, that's absolutely right. So that's, the, that's engagement with a small e. Okay, so what I was talking right, about so first eng- was engagement with a
0: small e. All right, okay.
1: Yeah, so there's obviously gr- agreement on all of the different types of uh, coordination or uh, joint action. Uh, just a, an aside, one of the problems with engagement is it's a really useful term for talking about doing things together, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost impossible to talk about U.S.-China relations or relating or uh, coordinating Uh, without talking about engagement. So engagement with a small E, track two dialogues, absolutely right. Military security, cooperation, uh, joint testing, et et cetera. Um, all of the plethora of diplomatic interaction, educational exchanges. Come, scientific exchanges, yeah. Sa- scientific exchanges comes under engagement with a small e. And those are, those are ongoing, although obviously they've, uh, they've minimized over the last couple of years right. or so. So that's the first way to sort of break it down is between a large e and a small e. But as you sort of mentioned at the beginning of your previous question, uh, maybe a better, and more interesting way is this is the argument I'm trying to make about engagement as a frame. Uh, as a mm-hmm. as a, a, a as a linguistic rhetorical frame uh, for this policy approach, um, engagement as policy, which is all of those things we've just talked about, and engagement as community. And I think it's the first point is that it's essential to try to split engagement up because otherwise we're going to have a a, a debate where we're really not talking in any uh, in in any way that's going to be understood by the other side, if you like. We have to split engagement up into what it is. Ask this question of what was engagement first. Frame, so uh, a meta-narrative about uh, US policy within uh, a view of what engagement was aiming towards, which is sort of some way of bringing China into the international community. Engagement as policy, all of the various practical coordinating policies and mechanisms, and engagement as community, which are the people within the China watching field involved in this thing,
0: and this is what you, as a sociologist, are obviously most interested in, and I, I would certainly agree, you know this is sort of where the rubber meets the road in terms of actual policy, you know, in terms of who is advocating, who is is implementing
1: particular policies. right? Yes, absolutely. That's the so we can talk about engagement as policy and engagement as frame. Uh, but those two both ultimately flow from uh, engagement as a community a bunch of people who are credentialed uh, and uh, and do the practice of watching china closely and then some of them move into positions of uh, of control in the in the bureaucracy and then move back out uh, again so those are ultimately the people who are going to affect U.S.-China relations.
0: So looking at them, though, are we able to get a clear picture of why policy predilections seem to change over time? I mean, because obviously there are a lot of other issues that contribute to that shift. These are what we might call sort of secular issues, bigger issues, big picture issues. And those would include, you know, the obvious shift in relative power, you know, economically or militarily between China and the United States, or specific things that China has done uh, in Tibet, in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang, uh, on Taiwan, that have, you know, a real impact on people. I mean, there's also things I've talked about a lot, you know, the sort of general psychological discomfiture that some would argue, I would argue uh, that we're experiencing at the sort of subconscious level of of our national psyche. I think all these things are, are important. So what are the factors that come into play at the community level? How, I mean, how how does looking at these, these individuals and their interactions give us a clearer picture of American policy shift?
1: Well, that's a great question. And it's really uh, sets up the sort of the response, which is that often in the policy debate within sort of international relations literature, but also sort of within journalism and the th- sort of think tank space, there's a tendency to slip back into these large macro forces, both domestically and internationally. So you mentioned sort of the rise of China, uh, disparities in global power, or movements and shifts in global power, we could say, uh, as as these sort of great international forces. And although they're powerful, I think that they tend to work more as uh, as metaphors, or what we might say, sort of hooks for us to sort of be able to communicate. So, say, we might say, well, uh, the Trump administration moved us away from engagement towards strategic competition as a realization that China is now a great power and China has grown, and therefore we need a new policy. Now, that might be kind of good for an undergraduate or a master's student, but it's not really a very good explanation of really what happened. Right. What happened? was a story of expert turnover, so, so that the types of people that were in uh, the Ab- second Obama administration were not the same kinds of people who were brought in by Trump, right? That's just the practicalities. Now, what I'm trying to do then is to say that large-scale macro forces, uh, rise and decline of states, or you mentioned psychological discomfiture in the United States, which I think we should talk about some more because it is fascinating. Ultimately, they are affected via specific groups of individuals who do the interpreting, framing, thinking about competing over uh, ways of thinking and talking about China within the US China-watching community. That's the ultimate reality, if you like. Now, it's a very hard argument to make because someone might say, well, but what about Xinjiang? What about all of these horrible things China is doing? What about the fact that China now has these weapons that Might be able to uh, destroy US aircraft carriers in the South China Sea. And it might suggest that I'm saying that those things don't matter. They absolutely do. But the primacy is in interpretation, how we think about these things, how we think about these things and talk about these things. And ultimately, those things are related to specific groups of individuals in the China watching community. So ultimately, this is a claim about what is real reality. Well, real reality is those people, not to say that. China and these uh, and these things that China is is doing or other the challenges and threats aren't real but it's how they're interpreted that's the key thing yeah
0: no I I really agree I think that's that's you you're absolutely right it, it all does ultimately boil down to that uh you know it's how those other forces are expressed through individuals right and in relation to one another yes now what's what's interesting to me about your your study here is that it in in a way, it's it's not really about China at all. It's 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 about the United States. I mean, you've quoted one participant who noted, and I emphatically agree that that China is a kind of Rorschach test, maybe the ultimate Rorschach test. That I mean, I've said the same thing in in many talks that I've given. So it it feels like you know you, what you're saying is that through how they perceive China, we can actually see we can learn a lot about. Uh, individuals in the United States who are active in in foreign policy formulation, and ultimately, w- w- you're, you're studying the U.S. and 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 not China.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's something I keep sort of saying to people that ultimately, this is about the United States. Mm. Uh, this is about the culture of U.S. national security, uh, about it as a fulcrum of U.S. culture more broadly about the things that we can and cannot accept about other countries around the world, things that we simply must uh, respond to. And we see that most clearly uh, when we look and compare uh, the US-China watching communities to other comparative cases. So if you think about Australia or the United Kingdom, for example, some of the other work I've done is sort of comparing Mm. uh, Washington DC with uh, London and Canberra, Uh, and how they've dealt with China. On the surface, it seems like a similar story of hardening of views in response to objective changes in the balance of power, and some nasty things that the Chinese are doing. Uh, But if you actually look beneath the hood, you see very culturally specific uh, China communities uh, that are dealing and, and, and engaging with governments in the UK and Australia really quite differently. So just one snippet, if you like, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, you lack this large think tank community who are, which are struggling often in a very sort of tough way, robust way, one might say, in order to potentially get into the next administration, because you don't have the revolving door in and out of administrations. You don't have the same incentive to engage publicly like you do in washington dc so policy has been changed in australia and the uk By a very small group of people in and around the national security executive, if you want to put it in those terms, Mm. you don't have then a large paradigm shift away from engagement towards something like strategic competition, because there's no reason to have a paradigm created in the first place, Mm. because it's not a matter of signaling one's in-group and out-group identity like it is in the United States. So Eli Ratner and Kurt Campbell wanting to create engagement with a large E in order to signal that that wasn't what they were doing anymore. Similarly, the Trump folks creating something like strategic competition in order to create an umbrella for people to go underneath that umbrella and say, hey, we're strategic competition competitors right. now. You don't get that in London and Australia. Now, I think that that's really the most important aspect that we should be focusing on, not these sort of Broad-scale macro forces of balance of power. Uh, what China's are doing. It's really a. This is a story about how Washington D.C. works. As a number of people have told me, this is a Washington D.C. story. And just one more point on that: China watching itself is a Washington D.C. phenomenon. Then, as one person told me, I think you can swing a cat at the corner of K and Fourteenth and probably hit a China watcher. Which was absolutely true. I was staying in a hotel just nearby, and I rock out, and there's one from one of the major think tanks, uh, just off uh, Massachusetts Avenue. Right,
0: right. I mean, they're all they're all in in Dupont Circle area. Right. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, actually, I think I said in one of the talks that you gave, you actually did show a map of DC and and where these actual think tanks are. It's interesting that there are so very many of them. Australia, just just very quickly. There's one major one. It's you know ASPI, and it ha- seems to have outsized influence in Australian policy, and uh, in, actually in, in um, American policy as well. It's 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 actually a very interesting case.
1: Well, its its impact on America has ar- arguably been greater than it has been in Australia. More possibly from the yeah. people in Australia, I've spoken to uh, what what happens in U.S. Uh, in Australian foreign policy is really done by the security uh, officials in inside the government. So ASPE is sort of, is an American style think tank over there. But the interesting thing there, I think for our story is really how Australia and Australia's shift in views uh, toward China has been used and uh, and sort of co-opted a little bit, but also interestingly has informed our debate in the United States. Um, You know, so this phrase, the canaries in the coal mine is absolutely fascinating. I would love to talk to you uh, and some other people from
0: Australia about that particular topic on another show. But uh, let's focus back um, specifically on the U.S. right now. I think the comparative angle is absolutely fascinating. You're absolutely right. But uh, let's let's dig into this, uh, what we've just talked about a little bit about, you know, what this does reflect about America. So, you know, we agree. We stake out positions on U.S.-China relations, and it doesn't just tell us, you know, about what makes China tick. It's really about, you know, the United States and what we ultimately want for this country. So I'm, I'm curious what you found. It means you know that we have to have conversations about how we see America's place in the world, how we define core American interests, our ideas even of what American society should value and how we balance or prioritize, say, national security versus openness and pluralism. Um, that all very much comes into play in, in the policies that we, we advocate with respect to China. So this is a, a very prominent idea in your approach, and it's something you try to To tease out with the people who you speak to, so how do the anti-engagers and the pro-engagers think about these issues? What are core American values? Uh, What should America's role in the world be? And is that a a good way of sort of describing the differences? And does it end up sort of reflecting about something more about their their general worldview rather than just their China-specific policy predilections?
1: Yes. Okay. So there's a lot in there. Let me sort of start with the first point, which is um, about the way in which uh, different types of China watch and different members of the China watching community do or do not reflect back on the United States. And it's something that I've wrote a little bit about. And And really, there is a tension at the heart of China expertise and being a member of the China-watching community because one is a member of the China-watching community by dint of one's understandings of China, right? Uh, You speak Chinese, you've been in China recently, and therefore you have a voice in the community. As soon as you start talking about the United States, your China capital takes a hit Mm. um, unless you can play a very... A difficult game, which is uh, to speak about China and the United States um, simultaneously. And actually, if you think about it, that's something that's a difficult dance to do. Uh, Someone in the media like yourself might be able to do it a little bit because ultimately we are located here in the United States and uh, and then it's okay to be able to sort of reflect and put the mirror back on ourselves. If one is at the center of the field and have quite a lot of capital... Uh, in uh, the community, then one might be able to do it. Someone thinks here of someone like Richard Haas, the Council on Foreign relations Or Ryan Haas. Ryan Haas can do it uh, too because he has a lot of capital, really, you know, has sort of made it and therefore can turn it back and say, well, I'm going to talk about what this all means for the United States. Now, many of the junior and younger China watchers sort of hopefuls, if you like, in their uh, late 20s and 30s, though, it's a very tough question to ask them to say, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to write my uh, policy recommendations and I'm going to throw in there something that might ring political. Right. Because if once you start talking about US core interests, then you're making a political point. And you see that strongly with some of the think tanks that already have a political view baked into them. So if you think of someone at... At the Cato Institute, right. for example, it's tough for them to make an argument about um, US China relations because everyone knows what their view is of what uh, US core interests are. Um, and that dynamic, though, is broader than just uh, uh, those two people, th- those people that we've mentioned. It goes to everyone within the China watching community. So, one of the things I'm interested in is the way in which the very nature of China expertise and and, and membership of the China-watching community does actually militate against this kind of agonistic com, uh, conversation that we have to have that might get unpleasant about core U.S. interests, which really does get to this question of what the United States is. And yet, you, you, yeah, but you have put that question to them, and you can tease
0: it out. And I'm I'm really curious, is that something of a shibboleth? Does it tell you, is that all you need to know about a person's worldview in order to to suss out what it is that they think about China or the other way around? Are there views on China indicative of a sort of deeper set of ideas about what America is, what America's place in the world
1: should be, what
0: American interests actually are?
1: Well, I think um, what it means is that when you're trying to understand the different subgroups within the China-watching community, how they view America is going to be uh, a part of how they divide and how they group together. It's not simply a clear sense of thinking about the US in one way means uh, they'll think about China in a particular way, nor the inverse. You can't read off someone's domestic politics from their views on China. But if we go back to those groups that I was talking about a little earlier, which is the sort of the engagers, the strategic competitors, uh, the new cold warriors and the, and the new engagers, there are sort of some tendencies that I think can be brought out. I think a lot of the older engagers, so the po- folks who are actually sort of long time span interested and engaged in the, the policy itself, or many of them former diplomats, et cetera, Many of them, I think, grew up with a a positive view of of the United States in world politics and a positive view of China. This is quite a a common theme in the China watching community that people who came of age in the 1980s and 1990s who got to go to China when many people didn't, they have a sort of a slightly romanticized view of of China and the vast changes, which isn't mirrored in younger uh, China watchers. But so too, what isn't mirrored is the positive view of the United States. And I think a lot of people who came of age around 9-11 perhaps see the United States in world politics in uh, slightly more confused terms, um, maybe not necessarily always a positive force. And so views on China, and views on in the United States are distinct and can't simply be read off. Um, of one or the other. I think people on the strategic competition are, are, are sort of more, even more hawkish or even more sort of critical of China, do tend to take a more positive view of the United States in the world, very sort of uh, attached to America's democracy um, or de- democratic status, um, and they're therefore less likely to look back on the United States in a critical sense. So what we're bouncing around here, obviously, is sort of domestic politics and different views among liberals and conservatives about uh, the United States and, and how that interacts or doesn't with one's view of China. So
0: what are then the things that seem to correlate strongly with positions on China? I mean, if you could only ask a couple of questions to someone who you couldn't see and, and about whom you only knew, you know, Uh, that they are somebody who works on China professionally. They're somebody who, you know, qualifies as a China watcher with that China capital. What would you ask them? I mean, if you had to to determine their their China positioning based on one thing, would it be partisanship, religiosity, education level, language proficiency, the time they've spent in China, when they were in China, when they started studying China? Uh, I mean, this is another way of saying, you know, what China did you encounter? You were talking about those older people, right. you know, liberal internationalists who were also sort of uh, seeing how neoliberalism seemed to be having such a, a salubrious effect on China. Yeah, I, I know those people. I know them very well. They're the generation just above me. And, you know, uh, and they are, yeah, many of them the architects of the old school engagement.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And and uh, let let me answer it in one way. And if if you prefer a different answer, we can talk about that <laughs> one as well. Uh, because I, what I would probably do, the more, I'm, the more I, I interview, the more I like to do it in a, in a roundabout way, which is to sort of ask uh, about something slightly different and ask, well, okay, so uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, was that a good idea? And you get a sense then of someone's sort of broad foreign policy views. Um, and if you get them talking often, you'll get a sense of how that plays into this precisely this view of, of America in the world. And from there, you can then infer some things. Uh-huh. I might say something like uh, uh, China's entry into the WTO was was that was that well handled, or was that a good idea? Right, and that will get you a sense into of someone's views on um, globalization generally, on yeah. globalization, and particularly U.S. diplomacy and, and how good U.S. diplomacy is. And the last one then the best way to do it is to say, you know, what do you think of so-and-so, where so-and-so is someone who was perhaps engaged in WTO accession or or maybe in the someone who's on the China side in the Trump administration. Again, speaks to this issue that people's views of China are not purely intellectual. Hmm. They are about who they are within the China community, of who they like and who they Don't like and and whose aesthetics they like and who they don't like. So it is really this embodied emotional thing.
0: Yeah. In in one conversation we had, you introduced me to this Latin word habitus, which I've since found to be very very useful in that it it captures multiple dimensions of an individual. You know their worldview, the their manner, their aesthetic, as you say. um, You know their whole affect, their cognitive style. I am confident in saying that most of the time when I meet an American, for example, I can. Suss out their partisanship without asking them a single actual political question, right in conversation. So, do you sense at this point that you're able to do this with respect to the positions of of China watchers on China policy without having actually read their writing?
1: Yes, more and more <laughs> uh, as you as you sort of get a sense of people, uh, you can tell from from the cut of their jib a little bit. You know that that old phrase. Um, are they wearing a suit? (laughs) What kind of suit? Does the suit fit particularly well or not? I mean, I'm joking, but uh, we all know that there is a particular political Capitol Hill kind of type, right? We could all draw that person if we wanted to. There's also a, we could also draw that, uh, that academic type with their sort of shoulder uh, patches patches and all that kind of stuff. Right. But, so these are useful stereotypes. Unfortunately, when you actually talk to people, it gets a lot more complicated, and you uh, you do have certain people who I go into an interview thinking, well, I sort of know what this person's going to be like, and I'm not. I, I really, am just doing this because I, I I want to sort of say that I've spoken to them, and then they totally surprise you, huh. and you realize that no, their their worldview comes from a principled realist position in IR theory. And you think that they're sort of a military security hawk, and that wasn't what was going on at all. So you think that they're a sort of a, a fire-breathing China hawk, but actually, and maybe you might tie that up with being a Republican, but that actually doesn't work at all. And so time and time again, I've really been conscious of um, of not bringing in, not reading a book by its cover, because it's simp- it's, it, it's not how the world works, unfortunately.
0: So yeah, I mean, I, I remember you, you telling me earlier in an earlier conversation that, that you can't just read what they've written in foreign affairs and assume that you, you know. Uh, can you, can you I mean, maybe give some examples of this without maybe citing names? Or, or if you can cite names, please. I'd love to, to who sort of surprised you in this, in this regard?
1: Well, I think uh, if I can name some name, Elbridge Colby, who I spoke to a few weeks ago, Surprised me a little bit because he was someone who I who I thought was a, a real China hawk, and actually he has a very nuanced intellectual position, which is uh, d- derived from a close reading of, of realist international relations theory uh, and a clear-eyed assessment and, and desire to prioritize U.S. Um, limited U.S. military resources. Yeah, I've read him, that, but that's exactly what he says. Yeah, strategy of denial is all about the rational use of of limited resources. But you know, again, this speaks to this issue of well, you can read people, and then you know, you don't necessarily get everything the first time. Not because of anything they've done, but because your reading perhaps isn't as good as you think it is. And so, someone like that, you realize that you no, know, you can't read off someone's views very clearly from who you think they are. Because they actually are somewhere slightly different, and so you could absolutely imagine someone like Colby in administrations of a Republican or a democratic strike hmm. uh, certainly not um as as clear as clear as you you initially thought yeah that's that's interesting. Is
0: there a difference that you can see in the types of thinking that are employed by people on different sides of this divide? i mean it's always struck me that there are very different cognitive styles at work uh a different set of lenses that each side is more prone to take up a different set of habits of mind in play typically when they when they think about these things. Has that has that struck you?
1: Yes, I think so. Again, going back to this issue of how much you can take into account the United States and how much you have to think about um what the United States uh of uh, maybe some limitations of of ourselves. Sure. And so I've been really struck by the the diplomatic viewpoint at the heart of uh, of what I'm now sort of calling older engagement. And here I you know I I think of people like Steve Roy. Yeah, of course. Uh, who's who's obviously like the poster child of that kind of view, but it's not just because of any sort of r- romantic view of China, it's because of it's a diplomatic viewpoint. And so the diplomatic viewpoint says, "Hey, we've got to deal with these people even though heck, it's really difficult to actually, you know, to get to any particular agreement on anything. And so, what is very striking about that is its its absence, really, or, or the or you don't see a lot of it on the uh, on the shall we say China skeptical side, which is really more of a military security viewpoint. Again, sort of which Colby sort of does a very good job of of uh, describing and promoting the point the, the issue though is that it's a very specific viewpoint it's not one that necessarily takes in uh, diplomacy or uh, takes diplomacy as seriously as one might prefer uh, or one might uh, what one might think it's a hedgehog um, viewpoint it's, so- it's it's yeah i mean I, i've Yes. I mean, again, my, my role here isn't to sort criticize. It's to try to <laughs> <But> help <no>. us. <laughs> yeah, right. like, for example, I've, I've
0: really lamented uh, how the community has been overrun with these national security types who just see everything through this one single lens. I suspect that this is the result of you know national security overcapacity following you know September 11th and and the Forever Wars, this mad proliferation of national security hammers all looking for that new nail and and finding hey there it is it's China am I way off the mark here or are we finding that I guess it's kind of out of the purview of your research I understand but.
1: No, it it's it does seem to be the case that um, that the conversation has become sort of securitized or one or predominantly about military security issues, and that is then sort of sociologically interesting to me because it talks about the different types of capital that are coming coming to the fore, if you like, a lot of uh, military security generalists who are not necessarily China folks at all. The imagery of the Cold War becoming more prominent, if you so, recent foreign affairs issue, uh, pe- pieces by uh, John Lewis Gaddis and Hal Brands really talking about uh, the Cold War. That kind of imagery becomes the central one, and it really does push out folks that might have uh, a more diplomatic viewpoint or a more economic viewpoint. Right a big part of the story about engagements demise is the the way in which the business community sort of checked out for a little while and i think you know i i i'm not got my ear to the ground too much on that side of things but yeah it might be sort of struggling to get their viewpoint ahead uh, back, back in the conversation i think from what i spoke to people around 2010 2011 even sort of uh, wall street and big uh, big corporations were okay with a tougher china policy or uh, maybe a little later than that uh, and now uh, that sort of ship has sailed, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's interesting that the absence of a of a strong pro-China business voice in the conversation, one might say. Let's talk a little bit,
0: David, about American administrations and the China watchers who were in power, as it were, during these different times. You've talked about this a little bit about the people who were in during the late Obama, the second Obama term. And you know, let's take it all the way through Trump, even into the Biden administration. I mean, it strikes me that... Among the outgoing Obama people, uh, not long after Hillary's loss in 2016, there were fissures already that that only seemed to deepen as the uh, Trump administration uh, progressed. Uh, Trump, of course, brought people in who were re- regarded as completely beyond the pale and outside of this community. I mean, Mike Pillsbury and Peter Navarro, uh, they were not regarded as China watcher insider types. But then there was people like Matt Pottinger, who was kind of an outlier. I mean you know, we all knew him, many of us who were in China knew him when he was at the journal, uh, knew him before that, even uh, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I dare say most of us from that cohort came away with a very different take on China. Actually, that's something I did want to come back to is you know, uh, your 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 conversation about generations was really fascinating. And maybe we can revisit that if we have time. But anyway, what's your sense of the, your, of, of the relationship between uh, that administration, the Trump administration, and the China field?
1: So my understanding is that in line with Trump's um, promise to drain the swamp, there was a marked drop in connections between uh, the administration and the China watching community. Not a complete uh, change. There were still some uh, China watchers sort of brought in and briefed by um, the administration. Uh, on certain issues, although oftentimes those kind of connections are really more the administration telling China watchers what they're going to do, and and please sort of a- advertise it and 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 write about it, but not necessarily going to change our views. Ryan Haas has
0: a great story about you know when when he came in to be uh, to, to brief the China team uh, at Trump Tower. Uh, it's on, it's on one of the podcasts that we interviewed Our, on. It's, it's pretty much Yeah,
1: no, that, that's, it's, it's a good plug and I'm, and I'm sure that that's, that captures the, this dynamic. And yeah, so when yeah. we're talking about sort of uh, engagement, sorry to use the term again, but engagement between the, uh, the administration or the people in the executive uh, on China and, uh, and the China watching uh, community, uh, we have to be aware that just because someone's talking to the administration doesn't mean that the administration's really listening. The, the most influence is really are the people who were who were inside, and and so when you're talking about Matt Pottinger and Peter Navarro, et etc., that's really where the the, the The sort of action is. Um, So I think that the the story that I've I've heard is really that the Trump administration really did sort of stop talking to your uh, National Committee of US-China Relations types. They're not going to uh, uh, Johns Hopkins Sice to get any sort of uh, major uh, thought on how to think about US-China relations, came in with uh, uh, the commitment to change US-China relations in the major framing, and then Matt Pottinger sort of took it from there with his China team. Now, you're absolutely right that that Matt Pottinger and his team were not out of the pale by any means. They were uh, well-respected China experts. And this is, for me, really important because it does mean that arguments about The community perhaps not mattering because Trump has made up his mind on China are are not wide of the mark. The China community still matters because Matt Pottinger and those people who were uh, his assistants and and deputies, etc., were part of the China-watching community. Now, uh, obviously, Peter Navarro wasn't. And whether the story that Jared Kushner got Peter Navarro's name from Amazon is true or not. I don't know, uh, but I would love to hear if anyone actually knows if that's true or not. Uh, Peter uh, Navarro knows. Yeah, yeah, Yes, um, if he's listening, I would really like to chat to Peter Navarro (laughs) for a little plug. Um,
0: And and so what about as we shift into the Biden administration? I mean, is your sense that, that there's a divide that remains between those who would like to reintroduce aspects of engagement and those who are determined to push forward with, you know? a more competitive and even confrontational approach. Uh, I guess, yes, there are people who, obviously, if you look at Jake Sullivan, you know, he was former Obama administration. There are plenty of people who were. um, And then some of the new blood they've brought in uh, had no experience in government, the three China chiefs at the NSC, for example. Uh, But Kurt, obviously, not specifically on the China team, but he's the Asia czar. It seems fairly lopsided that that you know he, they were picked from the more hawkish end of things. So specifically, people like Eli Ratner, who's at the Pentagon now, right?
1: Yes. So, how I would sort of talk about it is to uh, again try to put a sort of the China hawk, China dove thing to one side and say, well, and to, to uh, adopt a sort of a path dependent, uh, path dependent sort of view, which is at once. Uh, Matt Pottinger and his team successfully frame, reframe U.S.-China relations as strategic competition. What that does is it means that those people in the broader China-watching community who are interested in the policy debate rather than maybe the broader intellectual debate have to take a stand on strategic competition. Is this a workable frame? Are the arguments about how it is a better than engagement and how engagement failed? If not completely correct, at least worth getting on board with. And so I describe elsewhere the way in which that created fissures and a, and, a, and a split between the engagers, between those people who were willing to get on board with strategic competition and those that weren't. And so what you see in Ratner and Campbell's 2018 foreign affairs piece is an attempt by Campbell and Ratner to grab a democratic position within a world that is now one of strategic competition with China and acceptance that strategic competition is, is a frame that they can sort of work with and get on board. Campbell and Sullivan themselves wrote something about sort of living with China that signal, I think, a willingness to take on this frame. And so my reading of the Biden administration throughout this year has been trying to operationalize and continue the process of operationalizing strategic competition and not necessarily showing much in the way of desire to roll it back or go back to some sort of engagement, which they themselves were really important intellectual uh, critics of. Talking about it in terms of path dependency seems to sort of let them off
0: the hook for what you as a sociologist might otherwise describe as you know pursuing professional advancement under a new meta narrative pursuing you know personal influence under a new dominant paradigm <laughs> that that seems maybe more or accurate i mean in 2018 they sort of took the temperature and decided you know if i want a position in the incoming administration here's what i'm going to have to say i mean that's a cynical take but it it's it seems consistent with with the sociological vantage point that you've been you've been pushing here
1: Yes, I th- you know I think it does, um, and again, uh, it, it just my previous comments show how the tendency to sort of slip into these debates as purely intellectual is a really strong one, and it's it's difficult. And you have to sort of push back against that. Uh, so really, that intervention was mainly uh, a political one, and in 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 that sense, a uh, 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 trying to broaden the strategic competition umbrella to one where. Democrats could get on board with that as well. So this was a sort of a broadly speaking political move, and also one that would line up someone like Kurt to be uh, in positions of high authority on China. Absolutely, it's not for me to necessarily be critical of that in the sense that that is what is always happening. Think of 2016, sure. and and in 2023, when we're going into the next presidential election, we're going to see a flurry of new takes in foreign affairs and other outlets that are trying to position certain candidates for different kind of political appointee positions. Again, going back to this argument about the culture of U.S. national security, this is a, a really big feature of how the thing works.
0: I mean, you've been admirably candid about uh, talking about how the thing works, which a lot of people sort of dance around it in favor of these, uh, as you say, political narratives. Now, um, there is a new survey from the Chicago Council out, which I know you've taken a look at, and it looks at partisanship and attitudes toward China. For a couple of years now, everyone's been remarking about how much bipartisan agreement there is when it comes to China. But that doesn't really seem to be the case with at least the voters of the two parties, where Republicans are substantially more hawkish on China. They're way more likely to regard China as an you know, outright enemy to favor high tariffs still, to want to boycott the 22, 22 Winter Games, and um, to limit Chinese students in scientific exchange, although depressingly, a majority of Dems actually favor those limits too. Uh, what does this tell us?
1: Well, it tells us that um, this consensus in Washington about the China challenge and strategic competition is Not, at least on the democratic side, I think, reflecting clear preferences among a large chunk of the US population. Let's put it that way. I think it affirms my intuitions, which is that um, these large-scale macro factors, balance of power, or in this case, domestic opinion... Are constructs rather than necessarily real things, um, which focuses our attention once again on on elites and on what experts and people in the china field, but in this case pro, more broadly, perhaps the media I think is key are saying about China, so what I think we 're seeing is the politicization of China, particularly among conservative outlets you know I, I read Fox News every day and, and download at least one piece that is critical of china every single day so it's it's still there prominent in the uh, conservative mediascape yeah and also then it's very prominent in the liberal mediascape as well if you look at washington post and the new york times and uh and and the wall street journal perhaps as well you really do see lots of of china critical papers uh, uh pieces but they're Uh, That isn't filtering down, I think, to a decent chunk of Americans who are either, broadly speaking, disinterested or cynical, or I think for a lot of uh, progressives, particularly, there is this newfound willingness to criticize the United States. Well, uh, what is the US doing?
0: Right, absolutely.
1: So, David, you know, so you've been uh,
0: talking to all these China watchers so, so much. Do you find yourself facing the danger of what they used to call going native? I'm getting too close to your to your subject. I mean, you are at this point a Wilson Center China fellow uh, this year. Uh, is is this a danger for you? I mean, I, I actually hear you sometimes talking about it without that objectivity and that dispassionate kind of thing. I mean, you're you're, you're in it now, right?
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a danger which I keep trying to think about to keep at the front of my mind and it's it's constructed by the field itself which pulls people in one of the ways in which one can become a china watcher i think is to just pay attention and so obviously i've had to pay attention for the last 5 years and so again i've have thousands and thousands of downloaded uh, articles from the major newspapers, uh, the pull of the field is very strong. And yeah. what it does is it tries to push you into one uh, position or the other. So these labels, are you a an engager or a strategic competitor? So you, can, in a sense, it helps me because I can tell that what I'm getting at and the story that I'm wanting to uh, narrate is correct because I'm feeling the very same forces that I know that yourself and other China watchers are feeling the, the, the pull, the gravitational pull, if you like, to take a stand. Now, I'm resisting that strongly, which is helped by the fact that when you speak to people and you make a personal connection, often the projections of what someone's going to be like disappear. So I found myself having wonderful conversations with people who are the most fervent engagers. And uh, the most hawkish of anti-China experts, and having very nice personal conversations and sort of nascent friendships, if you like, uh, that if I did this for m- more years, I-, I hope would would become genuine friendships. And I think that that has been very good for me to because it it shows that one of the impediments to uh, community sort of cohesion is oftentimes maybe just getting together and saying, well, look, we need to get on the same page as people. And then we can start to talk about what are very difficult issues of what we do about Taiwan, what do we do about human rights, etc. So you are right, though, that I'm still facing this problem. And at some point, unfortunately, I think what I'll have to do is say what I've... Out yourself? Out myself (laughs) as someone somewhere in the field. And unfortunately, then I think that, you know, I'm not necessarily going to get to speak to everyone I want to because I'll be put in a camp. Or someone might say, well, you're not a China watcher anyway. You don't speak Chinese. You've never been to China, uh, which up until now has been a source of my own sort of sociological capital, but will right. start to be a, a source of lack of China capital because, China capital <laughs> because you know, I, I say that I don't have it.
0: You, you don't want to be part of this. I mean, for your own sanity, <laughs> save yourself, please. Now, uh not having a dog in the fight that would be kind of i mean i envy people sometimes for that for that reason we haven't talked specifically about the papers that you've produced so far out of your research uh can you just quickly walk us through sort of the outlines of of what these have been about and what we should be looking for cuz there will be a book coming out of this too but um the papers first
1: Yes, okay, so snippets of this have already appeared uh in the journal international affairs, sort of the british version of foreign affairs which is the which is a comparison of the u s australia and 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 u k china fields, which is this attempt to try to say, look broadly speaking the the story of engagement to strategic competition and the shift therein." Is one of of, it's a Washington DC story. So, folks who are interested should look to that piece. An earlier piece actually came out in a in another academic journal, International Politics, which compared U.S. China relations with post-war U.S. Russia relations, which has been a a feature of the debate. This, you know, we're in this 1947-1948 period, and we might be entering a new Cold War. Uh, And what I showed there, which actually speaks to this question of the the Chicago uh, public opinion polling, which is that what happened in 1947 was really that Democrats and uh, internationalist Republicans could get on board with a, uh, a hawkish Russia policy. And it was a place where the two could meet. And the question today that we face is whether the Democrats and the Republicans will genuinely come together on a even stronger, more hawkish Uh, China policy, which I don't think has happened quite yet. We're still not, therefore, from my perspective, in a similar position that we were in at the very origins of the Cold War. In terms of other papers, I have a piece coming out, which China Watchers might be interested in, in the Journal of American East Asian Relations early in the new year, which is talking about secular changes within the China-watching community, which we haven't really had chance to speak to today, but generational turnover I talk about there, the rise of the security generalists, so folks who are not real China experts but but are uh, experts on uh, military security matters, think perhaps Graham Allison and John Mearsheimer, these folks who've become big uh, right. people in the conversation. I also talk there about the the narrowing down and the specialization of the China scholarly community, which has been a big feature, the way in which scholarship has separated itself off from policy such that the old-style China watchers think Ken Lieberthal, uh, Mike Oxenberg, Ezra Vogel that were both prominent academics and prom- prominent in the policy debate is becoming less and less likely as um st- quantitative statistical methods and uh and more arcane um academic debates really take precedence in the strong disciplines rather than a sort of an area studies China focus.
0: Yeah, this is something I've talked about an awful lot. And I mean, this is really the mission statement, uh, you know, countering this pernicious trend is the whole mission statement of the National Committee and their uh, public intellectuals program, especially. Yes. Yeah, yeah so. And in
1: terms of the book, the a uh, book, The End of Engagement, uh, hopefully will be out some point uh, next year or early thereafter. Uh, and in it, I actually compare U.S.-China watchers with U.S.-Russia watchers, which uh, uh, which is a, a, com- a whole different conversation. But it speaks to precisely these themes about how engagement became politicized and, and implicated in prestige struggles within uh, the China-watching community.
0: On, on the papers, I've noticed that all the journals you've been published in so far, not, none of them are sociology journals.
1: Yes, I'm really an international relations person. Uh, And so that's why I think of things within a a sort of an IR type framework. It's hard to get sociologists interested in international politics in general, and particularly U.S. foreign policy more specifically. And so a lot of my outlets, I I talk to an international security, uh, international relations audience.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would recommend to listeners that you check out David's talk that he gave at the Watson Institute at Brown in March of 2020, uh, that last pre-pandemic moment. I mean, yes, it's probably the, yeah, literally
1: yeah. the last weekend.
0: Right, right, right. That talk is called American Hegemony and the Rise of China, Experts, Culture, and U.S. National Security in the Asia-Pacific. It's on YouTube. Uh, check it out. I, I uh, learned an awful lot listening to that talk. It's fantastic. All right, well, let's move on now to recommendations. Thank you so much for taking the time. It was uh, such a pleasure to, to speak with you about this stuff.
1: Well, I've really enjoyed it, and uh, you know, I hope we maybe get to do it again.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, a quick reminder: first of all, that if you like the work that we're doing with the cynical podcast, the best thing that you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's Access newsletter, which delivers to your inbox every day a beautifully curated list of all the important things happening, uh, and you know, points you at some of the good stuff that we're doing, the original work that we're we're producing on SubChina.com. So, um. Check that out. And meanwhile, let's move on
1: to recommendations. David, what do you have for us? So I think listeners absolutely have to check out a, a recent book by a French sociologist called Grégoire Chemayou called The Ungovernable Society. Hmm. If you're interested in uh, in neoliberalism and where we got uh, to uh, in the modern world, uh, Chemailloux s- s- tells this absolutely fascinating story of, uh, a new form of discipline in the American corporation in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly the role of middle managers. Uh, it takes us into this moment where rebellion was in the air and people were um, throwing spanners literally into cars on the production lines in Detroit, etc. and how a new, what he calls a new art of government came in to um, split up trade unions, to attack uh, 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 sabotaging workers and bring a new form of politics into the american corporation if you like your um michel foucault uh if you're interested in the origins of of globalization etc uh this book is is truly masterful and i really don't say that very much oh fantastic i will absolutely check it out Gre- Gregoire, what's his name again shemayu
0: okay i'll i'll find it but uh You know, French is the most difficult language to spell from just having heard. Yeah, so uh,
1: C-H-A-M-A-Y-O-U.
0: Okay, thank you very much. So my recommendation, as many of you know, Robert Jervis, the great IR theorist and pioneer in the field of perception and misperception in international politics, died on December 9th. I never had the pleasure of meeting him or, or even listening to him lecture in person, but his ideas are so foundational to to really much of what i have advocated when it comes to understanding china and and other countries cognitive empathy and especially the importance of security dilemma sensibility this habit of mind that says you know we should consider how our own words and actions will be perceived by our opposite parties you know i haven't i haven't read him since i was an undergrad at at Ber- berkeley but i have been revisiting his ideas uh now especially after his passing i have to say his His thinking has incredible relevance to this quandary that we now find ourselves in with China Uh, related to this, directly related to this. Please check out a recent episode of The Ezra Klein Show, which was hosted by Julia Galef, while the regular host, Ezra, is on paternity leave. Uh, Her guest is Philip Tetlock, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of a book called Superforecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction, and it's actually all about different cognitive styles, about foxes and hedgehogs, about integrative complexity, uh, inside views versus outside views. Uh, and it's just, it loads more. It, it's fascinating. It, it, it's a great conversation. And it also sent me down several rabbit holes. They also do a kind of re- recommendations thing at the end. And uh, one of, of of Philip Tetlock's recommendations took me right back to Robert Jervis. Uh, and it was just a day or two before his passing Uh so it's a fantastic listen. Please read up on Jervis and about his ideas. So, uh, David McCourt, thank you so much. That was a real pleasure. I, I look forward to having you back on the show to talk about comparative stuff and also to talk about this Russia China thing. I think it's, it's really interesting. We can sort of, you know, take our sociological hats off and, and just look at, at the historical moment of 1947 and then, you know, in 2021, 2022. Uh, I, I think it will be a very – we we haven't heard the Iron Curtain speech yet in Fulton, Missouri. But uh,
1: the- No, I don't think there's a British prime minister could, who could do a Fulton, Missouri kind yeah, of speech. Yeah. But just on Russia, last point, uh, look out in the China uh, dis- debates and discussions for the term reset, which I'm sure we're going to get because well, – uh, I, I think bro- people fancy. are allergic
0: to it. I think people are really allergic to that. I mean, because it looked so absolutely ludicrous. I mean, with the whole the whole tableau of Hillary with a button. Um, I think we've certainly talked about, I mean, I've the only times I've heard, seen that word brought up are uh, how we can't expect one or we can't use one. I mean, it would be like telling a, a Democratic presidential candidate, why don't you pose for a picture in a tank? <laughs> I mean, it, it's just, it's not a good idea. It's not good politics. So.
1: Yeah, but the tendencies are, are, built, are baked into, I think, how US pol- foreign policy works, that roll back or push forward. I think that what we'll see is even in its absence, the reset idea will come about um, because I think that US China policy and US Russia policy are going to start to mirror one another uh, and might do for quite a long time.
0: Yeah, that's so, so really depressing. (laughs) Anyway, on that note, (laughs) to leave you on a happy note. (laughs) Thanks.
1: Thanks. uh, Thank you so much, Kaiser.
0: My absolute pleasure. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We'd be delighted if you'd drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just as good, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can follow at Seneca Podcast or at SupChina News and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.